Hey guys, hope you're having a good summer so far. I'm really excited to introduce to you today our guest speaker here at Crossroads. Caleb Kaltenbach comes all the way from Los Angeles, California, where he's the pastor of Discovery Church. Caleb's been there for about the past four years or so. He's married to his wife, Amy, and they have two kids, Joel and Rachel. Uh, Caleb is also the author of the best-selling book, Messy Grace. He has another book coming out this fall, which I know is going to be incredible uh, as well. Uh, Caleb is one of the most popular speakers in our country right now, always traveling from church to conference to church and, and talking with people about what it really looks like uh, to love like Jesus. Uh, Caleb has been one of my closest friends in ministry for about the past eight or nine years, and I know that you're going to love hearing from him today. And so would you please welcome to the stage here at Crossroads for the very first time, my friend, Caleb Kaltenbach. How are we doing, Crossroads? Good? Everybody okay? Hey, I want to welcome all of you who are here uh, in this auditorium as well as joining us from the chapel, watching Facebook uh, Live right now, or maybe you're listening or watching after the fact. Um, I, I just want to let you know, uh, this is a great, great place, and I love your pastor, um, and I hope you do too, Patrick. He is a good, good man, and I hope you're taking good care of him. And uh, I love Daryl, and uh, I've actually uh, worked on staff for a while with uh, Rick Kyle in my past, and I survived, and he's a great guy. And I'm just so glad that Rick's here to preach here in Evansville, Indiana. It's going to be great. And uh, he just loves, he loves this church. I love Evansville. Jesus loves you. Anyway, you're going to love Rick. <laughs> if you're new, and it's been a while since you've been to church, and you weren't expecting to come, but... Uh, you thought she was cute, and you decided to come in, and uh, maybe somebody bribed you with lunch, or whatever got you here, whether you've been here forever, or this is your first Sunday, or you're still, you know, kicking the tires, checking out the hood, we're glad that you're here. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about me, one of my pet peeves, something that I don't do very well with. I do not do well um, with, with many different things. Um, I, I have different, like, phobias or whatever. I have an extreme fear of peacocks, but that's a whole different story that I'm not going to go into today. Maybe if I'm back, I'll tell you that story another time. But um, I don't like feeling left out. I don't like feeling out of place. I don't like feeling like I don't belong. I mean, seriously, it gets to the point where even I get annoyed when somebody takes my seat. I could be sitting somewhere, and I get up, and I could be gone for 10 minutes, and I come back, and somebody's sitting there. I'm like, dude, that's so rude. Okay, my stuff is right there. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's somebody I don't know or if it's my children sitting there, I'm like, get up right now. That is my seat. I don't like feeling left out, and maybe you don't either. Like, I remember when my wife and I uh, first got married, and some of you remember that if you're married. It's uh, before you had kids, when you actually had a life and you did things with other people. Um, we, we loved hanging out with our friends and everything, and it was just so awesome. But then all of a sudden, you know, all of our friends started to get pregnant. We really had been wanting to have kids for a while, and so we're like, okay, maybe it's a sign from God. Everybody else around us is getting pregnant, so we'll try. And we tried, and we tried, and we tried. No matter how hard we tried, we could not get pregnant. And so we started falling into a depression. Um, I was much more constructive. I threw myself into my work. My wife was much more destructive and, and just created chaos. She was watching um, Twilight movies and Hugh Grant movies and chick flicks, and ain't nobody got time for that. And I'm like, we need to we need to get you pregnant somehow because I can't stand any more Twilight. Um, no more Collins, no more dude running around as a werewolf with his shirt off. So 
we ended up going to this fertility clinic, and we got um, pregnant with my son on our very first try, and his name is Joel, he's 10. We got pregnant with our daughter, Rachel, on our second try, and she's eight. And I just gotta tell you about Joel. I love them both, but his birth was just so unique because it was our first, and we were like, man, we are not out of place anymore. We don't feel left out. We, I mean, everybody, you know, like, oh, we're so excited about this. And I could not wait to get to the hospital because I knew what to expect. I had seen the movies. I knew that when I got to the hospital, the baby would come out pristine clean and grab my finger. There'd be underscoring epic John Williams Star Wars music, a light coming down from heaven, and his first words would be, Father, and that is not what happened. Okay, if you're not married, you haven't seen a pregnancy yet, good luck. So um, we got to the hospital and everything was going right and great until the pain hit my wife and she became somebody that I had not exchanged vows with at that point. And I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Emily Rose, Linda Blair, whatever your name is. <laughs> we need an old priest and a young priest right now. And um, the doctor came in and gave her drugs, and she went back to loving God and others at that point. <laughs> and again, I'm sitting there, and I'm watching my son come out into the world. When he came out, my expression went from this to, oh. I mean, he came out and his head was a shape that was like rectangular. He was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. <laughs> he smelled funny, his neck wouldn't work. He made the most annoying noise and I'm thinking in my head, maybe they need to put him back and he needs to cook some more or something, I don't know. <laughs> and so I don't have much of a filter, if you know me. I will just tell you what is on my mind. And sometimes that's a good thing, most of the time it's not. But they wrapped my son up in a blanket and they gave him to me and they said, what do you think? And I said, he looks like a turtle. And I loved my kid, trust me. But I mean, I was so happy to you know, hold my turtle and my daughter looked like a ladybug and you know, held her and bring them home. And then like you don't sleep for a long time and you're like, I wanna be back out of place because at least out of place people get sleep. And it's just like, man, I don't like feeling left out. I mean, do you? I mean, some of you, you can feel left out on your way to church. You ever gotten in a fight with your spouse or your kids or your friend on your way to church? That's fun, right? You get in a fight in the car, you get in the parking lot, and everybody's like, okay, this is not over, but game face. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> and all during the sermon and worship, you know, you're elbowing the other person, you need to listen right there with insane. <laughs> you ever felt out of place when you're at a party and everybody else seems to know each other and then all of a sudden you're kind of like a wallflower up against the wall? Or maybe you fell out of place with your own family. I mean, bad news, I hate to break it to you, but Thanksgiving and Christmas are not that far away, right? I mean, how did that happen? And who is the genius to put those two holidays together like that? <laughs> because it's like, man, you work so hard during the end of the year, and then you spend time with people that maybe you wouldn't spend time with other than the fact you share DNA. And then maybe you feel out of place with some of your family, and your family starts talking about politics and everything, you're just like, oh, good night, how can we change the channel? Maybe you feel out of place in your work environment. Everybody else is climbing the ladder. Of, of success and they're getting promotions, but you're not. Maybe you open up a business and, and everybody else's business seems to be booming, but yours is not. You're applying for college or maybe you just graduated and you're gonna go to a community college and everything and then you're gonna move on to another place or maybe you're gonna go to a trade school or you've got a great job or maybe it is that you're trying to get into a college. Everybody else is getting there. Everybody else got into their trade school. Everybody else has this great plan, but you have no grandioso plan for after you graduate and you feel like you are not a member of the club. You feel like you don't belong. It could be that you're an empty nester now because you're, all your children are gone 
and it's the first time that you've been with alone for years, and you're like, maybe we should adopt a 12-year-old. I have no clue. And so now you could feel out of place because you got to learn how to do life together, just the two of you. Or maybe you have your spouse passed away recently or somebody else. And so you feel pretty much like you don't belong wherever you go because you feel like you've lost your right arm or you feel like something's not right. And for some of us, it runs a bit more personal, doesn't it? Everybody else seems to be married around us, but we're not. Everybody else seems to be in a relationship, we're not. Nobody else seems to struggle with depression, we do. Maybe uh, somebody in the past hurt you some way, somebody you trusted, somebody bullied you, somebody hurt you in a deeper way, and nobody else really knows it, but you carry around that pain and that scar wherever you go. Maybe you just feel like you've never counted. I want to give you some good news, and for some of you, this might be the first time that you hear this, and it's going to sound cliche, but it's true. God doesn't feel that way about you. He never has. And I understand that even if you haven't been to church in a while, you can come here and you're just like, man, this, I don't know any of the lyrics to the songs, but I like them, but I don't know them. And then we do communion. Maybe you've never done communion, or maybe it's been a while, and you're like, why are we, you know, two cups, chiclets, grape juice, is this a snack or what? I mean, you have no clue, right? And that's serious, because there are some of us, I remember the first time I went to church, you know, somebody gave me communion, I'm like, oh, thanks. I don't know what that is. And you can feel out of place if you haven't been in church in a while. Maybe you have some feelings about church or maybe Christians, or maybe you have a negative impression of God because of how other people have treated you in the past. I want to let you know you don't have to feel that way. And the great thing is, is that I think that Jesus knew ahead of time that we would struggle with the same aspect of not belonging just like they did in the first century we would today. So today what I want us to do is we're going to look at a story, at a parable that Jesus told, and uh, we're going to have the words on the screen in just a second, um, and if, if you don't have your Bible, if you just want to look up there, otherwise you can get on your mobile devices or, or Bible right in front of you, uh, somewhere right there, but we're going to be uh, in the book of Luke. Now, that is the third book of the New Testament. There are four uh, what we call gospels that are written in the New Testament, and gospel literally means good news, and these are accounts of some of the things that Jesus said and some of the things that Jesus saw. And so um, Luke is so unique because uh, Matthew and John, two of the Gospels, were written actually by two of Jesus' students. They were written by actual eyewitnesses that saw Jesus do and say things. Now Luke, in the very beginning of his Gospel, actually says, hey, you know, I've decided to write an account, and I've looked at eyewitness testimonies, and I have looked and, and listened to people who knew Jesus and talked to his students, so I'm going to formulate just this long, really detailed outline of Jesus's life. So if you love facts, if you want things to be proved to you, like if you love watching Sherlock Holmes on the BBC, then you would love Luke. And you might also like Luke because in Luke's uh, gospel, he highlights Jesus's interaction with women more than any other gospel. He highlights Jesus' interaction with the spiritual side of life and demons and uh, the uh, spiritual realm more than anything else. And I think partially that's because he's a doctor. He also highlights Jesus' interaction with those who are socially marginalized, pushed to the side, uh, made to feel like they have no value, dehumanized, devalued. And, and part of the reason, again, why he may have done that is Luke is also, he's not a Jewish person. He's Gentile, a non-Jewish person. And he's probably the only, if not one of the only, uh, non-Jewish people who wrote 
in the Bible. And so that's really important to him. And finally, he highlights more parables that Jesus tells in any other gospel. And a parable is basically a story that Jesus tells to highlight and teach a single point. And so this particular parable we're going to look at, let me give you context. In Luke 13, um, Jesus has been teaching about uh, God and how God loves people. And he's been teaching and, and trying to separate himself from the religious elite, the Pharisees, there were some 6,000 of them during his time, who believed that rules trumped relationships, that God is more impressed with you keeping the rules than he is with your relationships. And Jesus says over and over again, relationships with other people always trump rules. Relationship with God trumps any kind of legalistic, man-made, traditional rule that you would ever have. And then he gets invited to this Pharisee's house for dinner. And Jesus goes over and he hangs out with this Pharisee. And when he shows up, everybody's clamoring to sit in the seats of honor, which are right next to the, to the host. And Jesus tells them, hey, when you get invited to a party, don't sit in the best seats. Sit in the worst seats. Because it's much better to be asked to move up than it is to be moved down, right? And he's trying to teach about humility. And then he goes a little bit further. He says, by the way, when you throw a party, here's what I want you to do. I want you to invite the people that nobody else would invite. I want you to invite the people that you think have little value, the people who have no money, the people who are sick, the people who have been pushed out of society. I want you to invite those people. Now, the Pharisees and the people at this party were of the upper echelon of society. They did not like that. And so there's this one guy who makes this statement, and it's a really crude, cynical statement. And that's where we join Jesus in Luke 14, begin verse uh, 15. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Now, if it's been a while since you've cracked open a Bible, or if you haven't looked at a Bible for a while, the word, the phrase kingdom of God might be a little um, problematic. You might say, what's that? It's not an Orlando Bloom movie, okay? What I think, personally, kingdom of God is, I think that the kingdom of God means that, that God is the king, and that he has a, a, a bunch of subjects and servants. He has a political agenda, which is his own agenda, which is his mission that he's given his servants to go out and tell people about him, and that the kingdom of God is comprised of everybody uh, who serves God in heaven, but also everybody who has ever uh, followed the one true God here on earth from the beginning of time all the way up to now. And that was much of what they believed in the first century as well. And so when this guy says, it's going to be great to be in the kingdom of God, here's basically what he's saying. It's going to be great because then we won't have to worry about throwing parties for people that make us feel uncomfortable. We don't have to worry about hanging out with people that don't vote like us. We don't have to worry about hanging out with people that have had different upbringings than us. We don't have to worry about those people. You know, them, they, those people. And if you're used to reading Jesus, you'll understand this. Jesus does not take well to snide comments. And he's brilliant. So brilliant. Like, he was asked, like, like in, in the Gospels, do you know Jesus was asked, like, over 300 questions in the Gospels? He only answered three of them. And whenever somebody makes a snide comment, that is usually a setup for a teaching and especially a parable. And that's what we're going to join Jesus right here. And here's how Jesus replies with this story. He says, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. Now, in Matthew's rendition of the same story, the master is actually called a king. So either way, this guy has a lot of authority. And in the economic standing of the first century, you had about this many people who were low income or poverty level. Middle class was about like this, and the upper echelon was about like this. 
And so whenever you threw a party, you never crossed economic barriers. You stayed within your own uh, economic barrier, upper class, middle class, lower class, that kind of a thing. And so he would invite all of his influential friends, and this guy has a lot of money. I mean, he, sent, he has a servant, he sent out invitations, you know, paper or papyrus was very expensive back then, but this guy is gonna throw a lavish party. It's just something that you don't say no to, you know? I mean, I'm willing to bet that whether or not you agree with whoever's in that White House at any given time, to be invited to the White House is an honor, there's probably a good chance you might go, right? Because it's cool. And so people would want to go to this. And everybody listening to Jesus' parable, because they loved uh, oral rhetoric and tradition, and they were just like, wow, this is, you know, I love stories. So he's telling the story, everybody would be nodding, and then here's what happens right here. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen, and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. And another one said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, look, this is rabbit trail. I mean, just hear me out on this, okay? Free advice. If you invite somebody somewhere and they tell you, I can't come, I bought five pairs of oxen, they're lying. <laughs> they don't like you. Sorry. And as ridiculous as that sounds today, it sounded as ridiculous back then. And everybody listening to Jesus at this point, their jaws would have dropped. They would have been like, oh, nobody would ever dare do that to somebody with so much authority. Because like Matthew calls this guy a king. And if he really is a king, if you rejected him, he could have you killed. He could have you thrown in prison. I mean, this is a big no-no. And so now everybody's thinking, what is he going to do? Is he going to get revenge? Is he going like, to force him to come? Because that's great to force people to come hang out with you, right? That works out really well. But here's what happens, and this would have made their jaws drop. Look at this. I love how Jesus turns the tables. Verse 21, the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious. You would be too. And he said, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And when people heard this, they would have said, oh, how? Do you know why? because this means that the master is crossing economic and social barriers. He's saying, I'm not gonna do anything with these people. I'm gonna go down to the middle class and the lower class and the no class. And I'm gonna go to, I want you to go out to the streets, which would have been the middle class, the main drag of town where people lived, who never would be invited to a party like this. And by the way, I want you to go to the alleys, which would have been the poverty and low income, where people hardly had a house or anything like that. I want you to invite them Okay, and let me give you just some uh, detail as to who I'm looking for. I'm looking for the poor, people that don't have hardly any money whatsoever, and I want you to invite the crippled. In the original language, this could mean crippled or it could be of somebody of little value. Have you ever felt like that before? Have you ever been around people that made you feel about this small, and you can't really put your finger on it, but whenever you're around them, you're like, gosh, I like that guy. You know what I mean? And you just walk away feeling like, man, I... I don't know why, but I really feel bad about myself right now, and I don't like him. I have no clue. He also says, I want you to go invite the blind. And that doesn't just mean blind. It could be mean people who are slow to perceive. You ever felt that way before? The people are having these long, lavish conversations and everything, and you're trying to keep up? Because, you know, like for me, I can feel that way because sometimes I get, I'm good with coming back at people, but sometimes I'm not. I'll be having a conversation, somebody will say something, and I'll just be upset, and I'm like, what should I say? And four hours later, I think of it, and I text them, and it just loses its impact, right? <laughs> or the lame right here, these are people 
who were born with disorders and diseases. These are people that, that were born um, with disabilities. Maybe they incurred them later on, but people that really take a time and nobody cares for. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you struggle with depression. Maybe you, maybe you have a disease and you're afraid to tell people. You know? One thing in my life that's always been difficult is I have ADHD, so that can be difficult for me. Oh, a bird. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but we all have something that we struggle with. And Jesus says everybody was invited to that table. Okay? It goes on right here. Look at verse 22. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. Which, remember I said, the, the, the whole population of this city or town, the middle and low income was like this? I mean, good night. Most people were lucky to live in a one-room house back then. You didn't have closets or other rooms. So this guy's house to house most of the city was huge, and the fact that there's more room, this is an enormous, ginormous house. And it really underscores, you know, the... Um, idiosyncrasy and just how horrible it was that the first people rejected his invitation. It underscores the power of this person. And the servant says there's still room for more. Now look at this, verse 23. People listening to this part, their job, they would have said, no, you don't know what you're talking about. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. And people would have said, no, you don't know what you're talking about because they would have understood what Jesus was saying. Going out to the country lanes would have been going outside the city limits, people who are not citizens of the city. In other words, let me put it in first century context, go out and invite the non-Jewish people into what God is doing. And then he says, go behind the hedges. And don't just invite you know, non-Jewish people, invite everybody you can find, even those behind the hedges. And the original language, that paints a picture of somebody building a wall with a lot of hedges around them that you have been so hurt in life that you have built that as a protective barrier. Do you know somebody like that? Do you know somebody where it just seems like the relationship is always shallow and you can't go too deep with them because it's so surface? Because for them, it's probably much easier to uh, think about the pain of being lonely than it is the pain of being hurt in another relationship or by another friend. And Jesus says, I want all these people that are out of place. I want these people who don't belong anywhere and then he really puts a bow on the end of this story and probably really irritates the Pharisees. And I, I just, I love it when Jesus irritates people, even myself. I love it. But this is how he ends the story, verse 24. For none of those I first invited will even get the smallest taste of my banquet. None of the people that were supposed to be in the in crowd will ever get the smallest taste of my banquet. So it's really, really funny because the story begins with the upper echelon being the people who are in, who have it together, the religious leaders, the people that follow all the rules, the people that go to church every single Sunday and Wednesday and Sunday night and everything, and they're listening to the sermons all during the week. And I mean, good night. They are gluttons over what they know, but they don't have any compassion to show. And, and these people right here, you think that they're the in crowd, but by the end of the parable, these are the people that are out of place. These are the people that don't belong because they don't value other people. And, and Jesus says, hey, if you don't value other people, you can't follow God. And I think he's saying this to us, that out of place people always have a place with God. Out of place people always have a place with God. If you're here and you feel out of place, 
You feel alone in your marriage. You feel alone in life. You feel like you just can't get it together. You can't kick this toxic habit that you have. You, you feel out of place because you don't have money when everybody else seems to. You feel out of place because everybody thinks you have everything together, but deep down inside, you know you really don't. I want to let you know that Jesus has a place for you. When it comes to Jesus, you are never out of place. And I know this firsthand. Let me tell you why, okay? Um, I grew up in Columbia and Kansas City, Missouri. You know, that's why, you know, I'm a Chiefs fan. Well, I thought this was a Christian church. I guess not. You change up the sermon. Anyway, I'm, I'm a weird enigma. I, I live in the L.A. area, so I root for the Lakers and, and the Dodgers, and I like the Chiefs. And anyway, it's, you know what? We'll get into that three sermons down the road. I don't know. But when I was two years old, my parents divorced, and both of them entered same-sex relationships. And so my whole life, from childhood growing up, I was raised in the LGBTQ community. And my dad, I found out about him later on, he had many different relationships, but my mom went into a 22-year relationship with a psychologist named Vera, and they moved from, Kansas, uh, from Columbia to Kansas City, and they were activists, and they joined the local board of directors for GLAAD, and they uh, were, uh, took me with them when I was in preschool and elementary school to um, gay bars and gay clubs and campouts and uh, activist events and pride parades. And I remember this one pride parade I was marching in when I was in elementary school. At the end of the parade, there were all these Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, he has no room for you. And if that wasn't offensive enough, they were spraying water and urine over people as they were walking by. And I looked at my mom and I said, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians and Christians hate gay people. They hate people that are not like them. And I was like, I don't ever want to be a Christian. And any time I was around Christians, I felt out of place. I remember uh, my mom in the 1980s, her community was pretty big in Kansas City, and uh, there were a lot of young men, as you well know, in the 80s who died from AIDS when we really didn't understand it. And I don't know how much we do now, but I remember we went to go see this one uh, young man who was dying of AIDS a few days before he died. He was in his hospital bed, and this is a guy then his prime, he looked like Evander Holyfield, he looked like Mike Tyson, but now he like weighed literally like 90 pounds, shivering underneath nine blankets. And his Christian family was there, and they were not approving of him being in a same-sex relationship, but they were there, but they had their big old Bibles open, and they were lined up against the wall like they were waiting for a firing squad to come at them, and they didn't talk to him, they didn't touch him, they didn't hug him, they didn't kiss him, they didn't talk to us, and I asked my mom, why are they acting like that? And she said, Caleb, they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. And I said, reason 939 to never be a Christian. Because Christians don't like you if you're not a member of the country club. So by the time I got to high school when I was 16, my life was out of control. I had no centered worldview. I was sneaking out at nighttime, partying, getting drunk. I mean, you know, my, my hair was down to here, and since then the Lord taketh away and addeth. It's not funny. <laughs> not funny. I don't know what's funny, but I got invited to uh, this Bible study led by a high schooler for high schoolers, and I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to go and be a pretend Christian, and when I get there, I'm going to learn about their faith and then dismantle it, and so I grabbed this old dusty Bible off my dad's shelf. I had never, ever really, you know, owned a Bible, and, and at 16, you got to understand, um, I had never stepped foot in a conservative Christian household, evangelical Christian household, or mainly any kind of Christian household, not even a Catholic household, you know, and I love Bible bookstores, I really do, but God bless these people, it looked like 
you know, there was a riot and they raided a Bible bookstore because you walked in and it had the potpourri smell and it had the statues and they even had the nasty, you know, breath mints, the testaments that pop them in your mouth, taste like cyanide, if that's what it tastes like. And I'm looking around and, and I'm like, they even have the pictures on the wall. And I hear with a friend, I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep with Bible verses and lions and a little shepherd kid holding a lamb? I had never seen people have framed pictures of animals in their house before. And I looked at them and I said, is this part of the deal? If I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out. <laughs> and I went downstairs and we started studying and everybody was reading from 1 Corinthians and I was in 1 Chronicles. And everybody's reading nice verses about Paul and then I read a verse about somebody being impaled. My, my mask slipped off, you know. They know I'm not one of them. I feel out of place. And then they're like, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in First Chronicles. They said, oh, you're in, the, you're in the Old Testament. I said, does that mean there's a new one? There's updated 2.0? I mean, I had no clue. I just thought the Bible was a boring collection of 66 books that said nothing. But here's what I found. The more and more that I went back and tried to prove them wrong, the more I fell in love with Jesus. I didn't feel like I had a place with most Christians, but I felt like I had a place with Jesus. And here's what I learned about Jesus, that he had very deep theological convictions, and he had very deep expectations for how we should live our lives, what we would call holiness or sanctification, but he also had very deep and meaningful relationships with people who are far from God, and people that nobody else would have relationships with. Like if you voted for somebody differently than what Jesus would vote for, I don't know who he'd vote for, but he didn't care about your politics, he didn't care about that. His love for you superseded anything on this earth. I was like, wow, I feel like I have a place with Jesus. Christians are annoying, and I can still say that because I is one, and I'm so, I'm annoying some of the times, but man, I started falling in love with Jesus, and I knew I'd have to study what the Bible had to say about sexuality and gender and marriage and so on, so I started studying that, and I came to this conclusion that I still hold today, that God designed sexual intimacy for marriage between a man and a woman, and anything outside of that is not part of God's design. But then I also came to this conclusion that I still hold today, okay? That a theological conviction should never be a catalyst to devalue another human being. That if anything, <laughs> our biblical beliefs should drive us to love people where they are. That's called acceptance. But that doesn't mean we have to agree about every choice somebody makes to be in a relationship or to keep drinking or to do other things. Because loving somebody where they are, that's acceptance. And Jesus said we should do that. He said in Matthew 5, 46, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Paul said in Romans 12, 8, he says, um, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so I remember I, I became a Christian and got baptized and I was so nervous to tell my parents, because if you can imagine how a same-sex attracted teenager or a gay teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old teenager coming out as a Christian to my three gay parents who hated Christians. And they kicked me out of the house. Eventually, I was able to come back, but I kept on learning and studying about Jesus. And I learned that out-of-place people have a place with God. They have a place with Jesus, even my parents. And I learned that the more you lean into Jesus, he gives you the power to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. That would not be controlled by bitterness. So for those of you who have not been to church for a while, you darkened the doorstep of this church, you came in, you thought maybe the roof would crash down, and it didn't. 
you've been checking out this church, but you're still not sure, you're pretty sure maybe about half the people in here don't vote like you do, they don't look like you, they're in a different economic class, they live on the other side of the tracks, they, you know, you're just not sure about all this, I want to let you know, if you feel out of place, you're in the right place here. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I believe in Patrick's leadership. I cannot tell you how much I believe in the leadership of this church and, and Patrick's preaching and his leadership and people like Rick and people like Daryl and people, people who are doing amazing things here because this is a church where it's okay not to be okay, where you don't have to agree with us to be with us, where you can belong before you believe. I tell my church all the time, we're a church that you can belong before you believe. Why? Well, here's the deal. I'm pretty sure that when Jesus called his 12 disciples or students to follow him, they weren't Christian yet. Think about it, right? They didn't believe that he was the son of God yet, but he brought them along. So why wouldn't we do the same? I tell you why we wouldn't do the same, because people who are not like us make us feel uncomfortable, and our differences with people should drive us to them to learn more about them, not against them or from them. And so I, I went, you know, to um, school in southern Missouri, uh, this mecca of Christianity, maybe you've heard of it, called Ozark Christian College. And southern Missouri, I had to get out of there as quickly as possible, because most places where you go, family trees, you know, they branch. Family trees in southern Missouri just go straight up. It's just pole. They don't branch at all. Everybody's related. It's like the Appalachian Mountains. And so I went down there, and the cool thing about studying at different uh, uh, Bible colleges, you get to preach at all these small country churches. Like the first one I ever preached in was six people. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group of like <laughs> 40-year-olds, I guess. The second church I preached in, I preached in for 18 months. We had 25 people in the church. We had 50 people in the town. Um, we were the largest church per capita in the world at that time. We had half our town won for Christ. And for 18 months, I went there and preached. And one day, after 18 months, I was able to convince my mom to come to church with me. The next day, I showed up, and two elders were waiting for me on the doorstep. And they said, we want to talk to you. So they took me to the back room. We had two rooms. We had auditorium and the back room. And the back room was for children, but there were no children in the town. It was like a creepy Nightmare on Elm Street setting. I don't know, but... We went back there, and they said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, well, I don't like you, so I quit. And they're like, no, you can't quit today. you got to preach. I said, oh, you don't want that. I said, you don't want, I'm fired up right now. You don't want that. No, we don't have a sermon. you got to preach. So I went up there, and I mean, I gave them the most fiery sermon I could on loving people, and I ripped up my sermon. I prepared it was on fasting. Who cares about fasting? And so... <laughs> I went and I preached, and as I walked out of that church, I said, God, if you ever give me the chance to lead a church, I want a church that is filled with out-of-place people who are cutting, who are hurting, who are depressed, who are in gangs, who think they have it all together, who have been divorced five times, who have had abortions, who are questioning their sexuality, who are trying to get along in life, because that's what the church is. The church is really a beautiful mosaic of broken lives, out-of-place people that God unites together to glorify himself. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for a members-only country club that is more interested in how church is done than the fact that people around them are hurting, broken, and may go to hell if they're not the church that the community needs. Jesus Christ did not come to die on the cross for what everybody thinks is a church, but is really a Pharisee factory 
And so now I want to say something to those of you who are Christian. However long you've been a Christian, whether it's been two days or whether you've been a Christian since God was a boy, I want you to ask yourself this question over and over this week. Here's, here's your assignment this week, okay? Am I a safe place for those who feel out of place? Am I a safe place for those who feel out of place? You see, what I love about Jesus is that Jesus' personality and his spirituality was attractional. People who weren't like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were not like him. And they liked listening to him and spending time with him. That's why Jesus hung out in quote-unquote tax collector's parties when no other religious person would. That's why Jesus, in the next chapter over in, Matthew, in Luke 15, when he tells three parables, lost sheep, coin, and son, it begins in Luke 15, 1 through 3, and it says all the tax collectors and sinners came to listen to Jesus. Why? They would never listen to any other rabbi because Jesus was a safe place for those who felt out of place, and yet he was still able to hold on to his convictions. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and for yours. And I believe that when he resurrected, that our sin and shame and guilt was left in the grave, but he came up raised new. And when you believe in Jesus, I believe that can happen to you. But how dare we misappropriate the blood of Jesus by thinking that it is good enough for me, but not those people? Because I got to think, man, look, if you're not a safe place for people who feel out of place, if you're more concerned about, you know, you know, what you know than the compassion you show, if, if we're more concerned about what church looks like, if we're more concerned about all this than we are about people, do me a favor, call yourself a Christian, call yourself a disciple, call yourself somebody who follows Jesus, but never call yourself a mature Christian. Because maturity is not based on keeping the rules, it's not based on knowledge, it's based on loving people who are not like you. That's what it is. And maybe that means you go out to lunch with people. Maybe that means that, you know, somebody who you work with and they vote differently than you, you go hang out with them and you get to know them. And you build a relationship that extends beyond politics. And maybe that means that somebody who got promoted higher than you, you don't think negative thoughts about them. You start praying for that person. You get to know them. Maybe that means that you invite somebody out to lunch with you today that you never would. Maybe that means that you decide, I'm going to look past the way somebody's acting because I'm pretty sure if they're acting horrible, that means they've got a lot of hurt and pain inside of them, and I will not become like those who oppress me. I will not become like those who are hurting. I will not add on to their hurt and pain. I will kill them with kindness. You see, my, my mom, real quick before I close, my mom and dad, um, they moved to Dallas. You see... My wife is beautiful. My wife, she is beautiful, tan, toned, uh, just muy caliente Latina, <laughs> named Amy. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Fester and Gru. She had no clue. <laughs> As I tell her, I say, I don't know what kind of horrible sin you've committed in the past that you're stuck with me, but this is your eye candy. Enjoy it. And she really wanted to study counseling. So we moved to Dallas, Texas to go to live near a school where she wanted to go study. And I started preaching at this church. And we preached there for three and a half years before the summer of 2013 when we moved back to Southern California to go pastor Discovery Church. Now, when we were there, my parents moved there separately of one another. And they wanted to be close to our family. And then they started attending the church. 
that I was preaching at. And, and a part, and in, in, in difference to the, the church over here that neglected my mom and pushed her aside, these people in my church wrapped their arms around my parents and they loved them and they didn't want them to feel out of place. They wanted our church to be a place where you could belong before you believe, where it was safe. And they knew that there was a difference between acceptance and agreement. And two weeks before we left, both my parents, they gave their lives to Jesus. And so, I think about that, and the only way that I know that that happened was that people there believed that out-of-place people always have a place with God. And that God's love and grace is bigger than we could ever imagine. Now, it's your job to go tell people they have a place with Jesus. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to look at this story. Help us to be people who find people that are not like us and tell them that they have a God that loves them more than they could ever know. That they are never out of place as long as they're following you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you.